This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You can hear laughter in the studio. I'm joined <laughs> by the team from Fringe Wives Club. Hello. Hello. We have Tessa Waters, Hello. Rowena Hudson and Victoria Falconer Pritchard. Hello. They're doing a show called Glittery Clittery, a <laughs> consensual party. Oh, you say it so well. <laughs> and massive props for saying that on radio, Richard, because yeah. we've had some issues in the past of people not wanting to say glittery clittery, mm-hmm. even though it's not even a real word, glittery. Nope. It's and made if up. If anything, it's anatomical. Yeah. You know. And it's not rude. No. no. Why, why would even suggesting that a clitoris is rude be, yeah. be a thing? People exactly. didn't want to print it. No, no. Like had, we've had people in the past, and we've only been doing this show for a few months, but people saying that clittery is too suggestive. However, they're more than happy to write puppetry of the penis. Everywhere. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> double standard. Yay. Good why we're making morning. This, you know, wild romp of cabaret. <laughs> so where did this show kind of originate from? What were the, where did it begin? Because this is a, mm. um, a feminist cabaret, a sex-positive feminist cabaret, which, amongst other things, features um, magnificent <laughs> costumes, singing and dancing, and a little bit of games and audience participation. Yeah. Yes, we, wanted to, we wanted to try... Our, ga- our goal was just to make a... Super fun, super uh, ridiculous and, and interactive show that educated as well and ent- entertained. Um, and we came mm. up with the idea, well, we were having Bloody Marys one morning. <laughs> Pretty uh, normal. At Cabaret mm-hmm. Clock in Edinburgh. Yep. And Ro, what, you brought up, someone had approached you. Mm. To- yeah, so last year I was doing a solo show called Strong Female Character. Um, and oh, it was a comedy, but it was actually about sexual assault, uh, which had happened to me when I was quite young. And uh, at the end of the show, a lady came up to me and said, I think you're the person to write a show that solves this problem for me. And I said, okay, what's the problem? And she said, I want to know how I can dance to music at a club as a feminist that if the lyrics were shouted at me from a car, I would be threatened or hurt or or abused or kind of upset. Wildly offended. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Wildly offended, et cetera. And I was like... That's actually very true. And I started listening to all this music and actually listening to the lyrics. Yeah, and it was horrifying. And so I was chatting to these guys about how I could make that happen. And I realised I am, I can sing, but I am not a musical genius like Victoria Falcon (laughs) Pritchard. Well, no, we were talking about it and then we sort of... Uh, thought that it, the best way to do this would be by writing a song that uh, you know used the same kind of sweet beats that we would love to dance to, but kind of reverses the misogyny. Um, and I was like, I would love to write that. I think we could maybe you know use catcalls that other people in the audience have heard. I don't, we were talk, t- thinking about and I was making like, I something. I could do a killer big. dance for that. Exactly. And then, uh, <laughs> and and then we realized Fringe Drive Club was born. We, we, realized we, we, we were just the Fringe Drive Club before this moment, but that's when I think the show was born. Mm. Yeah. 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 Now it's a, Call to arms. a late night show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not yes. too late. It's on at 10 pm at the Greek yeah. Club. So it's mm. the kind of show that you can wrap up your evening with and That's wrap so it up uh, by being hugged by a giant vulva. <laughs> uh, so it's a sex positive <laughs> affirmation. There's, there is understandably anger underlying the show, but there is also humour and music. Is it, it reinforces that humour is perhaps one of the best ways to talk about serious issues. Mm, yeah, I think so. I think if you make someone laugh, you know, they relax, they, you know, like your body releases positive endorphins and you feel good and you just feel more open and you're more able to have a conversation with someone. Mm. And I think also, like, especially in the times that we're living, uh, you know, 
there's some pretty awful things going on in the world and we feel like in a way uh, feminism is kind of being pushed backwards again and as is a lot of uh, equal rights and civil rights Mm -hmm. around the world. Um, And so I think it's, yeah, it's definitely time to kind of, we very much feel like it's a bit of a call to arms and if we don't, you know, use use what we, our skills that we have, which is comedy and music and dance and connecting to people, um, yeah, get a message out and rile people up a little bit. But I think also, like, it's not about, we don't want people to leave with anger. Like, it might be Mm -hmm. one of the things that does certainly come across, but it's... The call to arms is also about mobilising people's energy to stop being angry and start to actually... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Positive action. Positive change, Mm. yeah. Where did the game show aspect of it came from? (laughs) Come from, I should say, rather than came from. I'm talking Mm. about in the past tense. The show is still on. It's still happening. (laughs) The game show came from a whole bunch of research we did, essentially, about the shocking lack of education about the female body that women receive, but also humans in general. Uh, and we, we discovered that through, there was a whole bunch of surveys and research done that mm. said, you know, children from quite a young age could draw an anatomical penis, even if they're just doodling, if you'll excuse the part. <laughs> doodling a doodle. Love Eight. that. Comedy, comedy. Um, but no one, even into their, well into their adulthood, could draw an anatomical vulva or indeed realise what a, a vulva is different from the vagina. Um, and so for us, education about our own bodies is really important and mm. also other people being educated about the female body is important and we sort of want it's like how do you how do you give people an like, anatomy real- lettuce lesson and make it fun uh-huh. exactly. Wait a game show uh, Australian game show and, and so not just an anatomy lesson but um, a, a lesson in politics and social awareness as well because yeah. again that underlying exactly. message that a woman's body is somehow less important mm. yeah. than a man's body or or, or or should be somehow mysterious and, and sacred. And veiled. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, no, it's actually, I mean, it's fascinating and glorious and... And hilarious and, and weird and stupid and, and, and silly. Yeah. Bodies, you know, which is just great. like a willy. Exactly. <laughs> and the music aspect, is yes. that, Victoria, part of your key role in the show, for example? I mean, yeah. I, 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 do, I do love to create, a, you know, a sweet track with amazing beats, which I've been very, very lucky to be able to do in this show. Um, so uh, the influences in the show range from rockabilly to 90s rave to, like, the most bombastic 80s Bonnie Tyler wet fantasy I've ever had in my life. Um, and, yeah, I've kind of been given licence to go go super nuts on it which is amazing and also have three-part harmony in every song that I write which is also a wet dream fantasy of mine Um, (laughs) and in fact these guys have uh, this is the first time we've like together that we've sung as a group and also that they've uh, you guys have sung uh, for a while on stage (laughs) in front of people which is (laughs) phenomenal and you know the first time we all did it I was um, because I'm kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, stage mum type. Uh, <laughs> stage mum, so, that's what you call it. it yeah, she's affectionate, but she's good. Exactly. Good. So she it was kind of checking to see whether they, you know, could actually sing in harmony before we started. It was one of those moments where I was like, this is either going to make or break the show. Like, <laughs> if it's not going to happen, then it's not going to happen. And then I just, you know, cried. Burst that, that into tears. Moment, when we sat I, around the piano, yeah, we, I, we hit the note and we all burst into oh tears. Man. Like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Relief and joy. Relief and joy and, you know, it, hope for whatever is going to come next. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of whatever's going to come next, in a sec we're going to get a song from the Fringe yes. Wives Club, mm-hmm. uh, an extract from Glittery Clittery, a con sensual party. 
<laughs> but I wanted to acknowledge a great review Steve Bennett has written on Chortle. Oh. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, your review. We, no, have we have not read this. Not read that. Ah. Oh, God. Thanks, oh Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Let's see. Spangly <laughs> vulva shoulder pads. That costume detail pretty much sums up glittery clittery and all singing sparkle-filled cabaret show with a strong message of female empowerment set to cracking show tunes. Fringe Wives Club, the trio behind this, certainly put the beat into oh. Beat the Patriarchy. Yes! <laughs> Steve, we love you, Steve. Oh, thanks, Steve. Thank you. From oh, what a gentleman you are. <laughs> So uh, I was delighted to, to see that review. Uh, the tone is always jubilant, never preachy or Aww. lectury. Oh, so, that's nice. Yeah. That In fact, fun. that is like a, a key thing that we have thought mm. about all the way through. We don't want it to just be three women yelling at people from stage, being like, just be better. Like, that's <laughs> not what it is. It's about, no. you know, education yeah. and entertaining and making it, and everything fun. accessible. Let's have yeah. Fun. Let's drink some champagne. Yeah. I mean, it is. Find the patriarchy is boring. We've been doing it for so long. And over and over <laughs> again, over the same thing. Keep things. doing it. I want a champagne in my hand, and I want to wear sequins. <laughs> yeah, and eyelash, and just have yeah. a good time and have a party with like lots of cool people, and yeah. celebrate my amazing breasts. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I'll second that. <laughs> Fringe Wives Club Glittery Clittery, a consensual party, is on at the Greek Centre, which is just on the corner of... Lonsdale and Russell. Thank yes. you very much. Uh, and it finishes this Saturday. So you've got tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 10pm to get along and see the show. Tickets are $22 to $30. You can book through comedyfestival.com.au or call 1300-660-013 or you can rock up at the venue to see Glittery Clittery as part of the Melbourne International Comedy festival i think it's time to go out on a song shall yeah, we do it do i need to give a language warning or uh, uh, are yeah, we allowed to say we, there yeah, is a bit of swear there is a bit of swear there's a bit, of, sw- bit, of, there's a bit of a swear yeah so yeah. if a little bit of a swear, swear is something that you don't want to hear or people in the room may not want to take them out of the room take them into the kitchen make a cup of tea yeah. <laughs> oh yeah come back in about three minutes <laughs> yeah <laughs> perfect thank you uh, we're gonna do a song uh, about <clears throat> the sexist history of pockets um and I think I'm, yeah. we're just going to go into it. Let's, Let's just do it. Let's just go into it. Let's just do okay. it. <clears throat> Good morning, <laughs> Cabaret Clock. Everyone knows that history shows that a pocket is more than a hole. It's a functional thing to put our bits in, but the lack is taking its toll. From our pants to our skirts, yeah, right where it hurts. It's, it's a, a sign, sign of inequality. And we're wondering why. So we three will try to explain their importance and necessity. A one, a two. A one, two, three, four. I want my pockets deep and wide, enough to fit my hand inside. Functional for him and her and me. On the side or in the rear, on the breast or just right here, a world full of pockets is where I wanna be. Down for us, right? I was out with my wives, we paint the town. The meter just dropped. All our wheels are 
richtig. Oh, ich habe so viele Vibes. Ich bin spending information so wedding and I just want to say, I just love you and thank you for supporting me. And I love to see you come out and you're with me. So we put our bags down. The DJ was banging. We were having fun. I saw a hot nose that I'll buy you a drink. But my handbag was gone before I could blink. I couldn't believe it. The thief was on the run. I want my pockets deep and wide. Enough to fit my hand inside. Functional for him and her and me On the side or in the rear On the breast or just right here A world full of pockets is where I want to be I was kissing my sweet baby on the train of town He said, honey, stop, and began to frown Sugar, I'm in heaven, but my lips are chipped Oh, so chipped I was wearing my new jacket, I mean, yes, queen I reached into my pocket for the Vaseline But to my shock, <gasps> to my horror What? There were no pockets No They were goddamn decorative flaps. Decorative flaps. I mean, why the fuck would somebody make a jacket without any freaking pockets? And I don't understand. It looks like it's going to be a little, uh, uh, like an amazing pocket. He's just like, oh, this is going to be a new jacket. I'm so, excited. I'm so excited to put my hand in there later. And actually, no, you try and put your hand in there. And then it turns out to be just a piece of material that means nothing at all. I mean, why the fuck are they still making this? I know exactly you, all of you at home know exactly what I'm talking about. I, can, I am absolutely sure of this. I mean, hello, here we go. The patriarchy has screwed us all once again. And I just, okay. oh, oh, this is being streamed live. Oh, I forgot. Okay. Um, I get really angry <laughs> about it. Cause I don't want no handbag, no fanny pack. No velvet pouch or a big old sack. I don't want a socket. I don't want a locket. All I really want is a motherfucking pocket. A pocket. Everybody now. I want my pockets deep and wide enough to fit my hand inside. Functional for him and her and me. On the side or in the rear On the breast or just right here A world full of pockets is where I wanna be Let's take it a cappella, let's take it a cappella I want my pockets deep and wide Enough to fit my hand inside Functional for him and her and me On the side or in the rear On the breast or just right here A world full of pockets is where I wanna be. Let's take it home, let's take it home. A world full of pockets is where I wanna be. A world full of pockets is where I wanna be. Yeah! Yeah! Woo! I need to burst into applause, but I have buttons to push. That was Fringe Wives Club. 
You can catch them, as I said, at the Greek Centre as part of the Comedy Festival. Their last three shows are tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 10pm. Tessa, Victoria and Rowena, before you go, any other comedy festival artists or shows you quickly want to plug in the last few days of the uh, festival? Double Denim have an extra show. There is Golden yes, Gibbo exactly nominated show. Double, uh, Michelle Brazier and Laura Frew. Yes. Incredible sketch. Hilarious, dumb, but glorious. Uh, so 11 much fun. 11pm tonight at, at the Bellevue. Bellevue. Uh, uh, it's nearly sold out. Isn't it, yeah, yeah. I think. Isn't it tomorrow? Oh, it's Friday, oh, it's Friday night. night. It's Friday, Friday night. night. Friday night. Friday night. Also, extra. Tessa's doing her own solo show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> award winning. Um, award yeah, winning. It's award winning. Um, and you should definitely go and see it. It's called Full is Sick. It's on at 8.30 at the Greek Centre. In Physical fact, you can... comedy, good times. Yeah, yeah. You can One double bill. You can just Adelaide. double bill. Exactly. Do, do the double feature. And yeah. I'm going to give a quick shout out to another show that I haven't seen this year, but I know you will love if you liked what you just heard. Lady Sings It Better. Yeah. Oh, yes, love definitely. those, love those women. They're performing a show called Storytime at the Hair Hole at Hairs and Hainers Bookshop in Johnson Street, Fitzroy, and also at the Butterfly Club. So check out Lady Sings It Better at the Comedy Festival website, comedyfestival.com.au. Thanks for having us, beautiful. Thank, Thank, you, Thank you so much. much. Thank you. If you need a break from comedy or an antidote to comedy, or alternatively, if you just want to see some theatre and some theatre that isn't in a theatre, well, have I got a show for you. <laughs> I've got the Corinthian Food Store Collective in the studio to talk about their show, This This Is Mine, which is performed in houses and homes. So uh, I've got director Duncan Ragg. Hello, Duncan. Hi, how are you doing? Really well, thanks for coming in. And performer Matilda Ridgway. Hello, welcome to you as well. Hi. So before we go any further, you're an independent theatre collective from Sydney, I do believe. Yes, we are. What brought you down to Melbourne? Uh, I think the idea to travel and to find new audiences, and I think the the good thing about this show is that you get to meet new communities and be really quickly immersed into new communities. So we go out to people's houses, and there's people we don't know, which is really nice, because when we do theatre for a living, sometimes the foyers are the same people over and over again, and lovely people, but this gives us a chance to take theatre out to places where we wouldn't normally get to go, and to meet people who wouldn't normally go to the theatre. And <clears throat> for Melbourne, it's really nice to make new friends, make new connections, and share the story wider than Sydney and find it connecting. And, I mean, the show started in New York and it's been travelling around everywhere, so I think we've always had the idea that if you've got a show that can go to people's houses, why stay in Sydney when you're doing the same thing? Why not branch out? So we've been to Canberra, we've been to New York, we've been to Melbourne, and who knows what's next. <laughs> Adelaide? <laughs> I guess, that as a, a question for you, Matilda, what's mm-hmm. the challenge like performing in a lounge room, for example, versus on stage at Belvoir, where the audience is surrounding you but reaching out into the distance, as opposed to in a lounge room where you can literally see whether people are engaging or not? Oh, I think it's a much closer dance that you have between uh, everybody. I mean, a place like Belvoir is amazing because the audience is still intimate, but... 20 people in a living room is a completely different dance. Uh, You feel every shuffle, you feel every cough, you feel when they are holding their breath or leaning forward and uh, that becomes so much more palpable and kind of um, permeable or something. Yeah. And where did the idea to perform in lounge rooms come from? Oh, this is a fun one. Um, (laughs) So we we were scheduled to do a residency in New York uh, and about two hours before I got on the flight, we had an actor pull out. And so we fly to New York. I sent <laughs> off a bunch of emails. I fly to New York, arrive at three in the morning, stay up all night trying to figure some things out, uh, ride across the city on bicycles, audition people everywhere, Matilda in tow. And finally we get to this space that we're supposed to be performing in and it's uh, this gigantic warehouse 
uh, which to which when you have a new actor, you can't work in that space. It's not we didn't have enough time or money to afford it. You know the usual trickery that we would do. So I went back to the designer's house and we were discussing it uh, over a cup of tea and I was like I just wish we could do it somewhere like here because he lives in the projects and it's this in the old uh, luggage factory but it's really beautiful places lots of light you can see the Statue of Liberty from his window uh, there's music coming from boomboxes in the projects back and just it feels lived in and he was uh, a couple of drinks later he was like you should just do it here uh, <laughs> and I was like could we and and suddenly um a couple of weeks later, we were building walls, building walls in the space, and 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 I had a giant circular saw running around the living room, <laughs> uh, which doesn't happen in the show, by the way. So feel free to come along. And so and 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 it worked because suddenly you felt like you were in a in a space which had a context. It was lived in. It was comfortable. People were coming in from. We could walk around the streets and invite people to come to the show, and they felt like there wasn't a, a space that they weren't allowed to come into. It was actually a really comfortable domestic setting, and you felt like you were walking into something that you, a lounge room. You could sit on a couch, you could have a drink, you could listen to some music before the show, and you were allowed to step into that space, which is what I've always felt with theatre. Sometimes, like um, f- friends and family who aren't involved in theatre come into the theatre and don't feel like this is a welcome space for them, or they feel like something is above them. Uh, and so here it feels like we're very much on the same level. Mm. So a welcome domestic space for uh, an uncomfortable domestic story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had a couple of friends come and see the show and at various moments kind of lean forward and get pretty freaked out. I think there's a difference between the kind of traditional uh, audience theatre relationship of being in the dark, being passive, kind of watching brightly lit actors And so you know when there's a fight sequence on stage that everything is going to be fine or when there's raised voices that it is kind of um, perfectly orchestrated. And that's not to say that this isn't perfectly orchestrated um, or that they're not safe things that we're doing, but there's a real difference between seeing it in a living room. Raised voices in a living room has a real kind of... A completely um, different resonance. You know, and it's a really amazing thing. I have people come up constantly and just go, oh, when you started shouting, I got really upset or I got... I wanted to come up on stage and stop what was going on because there's just some, yeah, some body memory about people shouting in a house that everyone has, I think. Yeah, I can imagine that it would be, as you say, a completely different theatrical experience because in in a dark theatre you can fold your arms, you Mm. can lean back and you know that by virtue of passing through the theatre door you've entered this other space where yeah. uh, rules don't necessarily apply and, and in a domestic setting, in a, in a lounge room, in a house where you may be remembering your parents' argument or your argument with your ex-lover or yeah. a fight with a flatmate, whatever it may be. There's a completely different kind of vibrancy there. Uh, talk to us, Duncan, about the, the script for this piece then and how it, who's written it, how it's been developed and, and why stage this particular work. Uh, great. I think why stage this particular work is a really important question for us. It's always asking why, um, why, why this work and also why the space. We all do a lot of work in, in, in Sydney on you know, main stage shows or in, in film and it's often you just sort of throw it in a theatre because it can be on then and someone will give you the chance to put a show on and you're, like, thank, you're very grateful for that. And here it's about always thinking about what does the space offer you. So I wrote the, I wrote the play in Barrel uh, at my grandfather's house um, who's never visited the house once his wife died and then he himself died and so it was this abandoned place that had a a sense of uh had, had ghosts there for sure and um normally we're a company who devises a lot of work so i came the first time to these guys to charles and matilda and to shiv and i said this is a, a work that it's mostly formed but i need 
to hear what you guys are in this. And I wrote it for Matilda, who'd just been on tour doing um, Hamlet and playing Ophelia for however many hundred and... 20. 20 performances. And uh, and we were sick and tired of... of, of getting naked on stage or, ma- or being made to cry or beaten up or whatever it is that the female roles were given to her. And I said, I want to write this show with you and for you to give you something really strong to play. Uh, and so in the show, I said, I, I made a guarantee that she could um, reverse all of those things and make sure that she could do that to a man, uh, <laughs> which is endlessly fun to watch. Um, but it, it came out of wanting to make it a really personal story for all of us. Uh, and the, sh- the, sh- the show certainly was written in some format, but it's been taken by these guys and made into something really lived in. And especially when you're in a, an inter- as intimate a setting as this, you need the characters to be embodied and to be really fully fleshed out and real living people. And so when you take it into a space, like at one point we did it in Matilda's house for a couple of nights, mm. and um, it became this o- entirely organic thing because all of the objects she picks up are her own uh, she knows the entrances, exits. She knows how to walk dark through the dark space and feel every element of the space and know it. And then at one stage we had Matilda's... Um, Cat, Benny, <laughs> trying to come onto the stage. Actually, there's a beautiful dog called Jetta at the house that we're at at the moment who would really like to a little cameo as well. <laughs> <laughs> what Duncan was just saying about the roles that you had been playing is pretty depressing to think about the, <laughs> the roles that exist for women in the theatrical canon. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's no joke. And then unless there is diversity in the theatre ecology, unless there are diverse people making work, writing work and programming work, we're not going to see a change from the kind of heteronormative white canon of theatre. So it's really important to have stories where we see women who are not crazy or crying or being beaten up and that we don't just see um, a whole bunch of Hamlets and Ivanovs and Platonovs and all of that white male genius just keeping on rolling. Which reinforces for me one of the the key differences between the independent theatre sector in Melbourne versus the independent theatre sector in Sydney. Mm -hmm. In Sydney, um, looking at the work that is, whether it's work that is staged at the Old Fitz or or at kind of the the Darlinghurst Theatre or whatever, it seems to be a focus on the well-written play yeah. uh, and as if a lot of the work is being developed essentially as a calling card to say, here's what I can do, here's mm-hmm. what our company can do, please, Bell Shakespeare or uh, STC or whoever put us on. Mm-hmm. Here in Melbourne, the independent companies uh, like The Rabble or who were on the show last week yeah. are making staunchly, overtly feminist work, much more experimental work as well. Why do you think these differences exist between Sydney's and Melbourne theatre scenes, given that... in many ways, these are very similar cities. Yeah, I guess uh, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder if it's also because Sydney uh, doesn't necessarily have a theatrical centre. So there are really experimental works being made, but you might just have to go out to Penrith or Campbelltown or Ashfield to see them. And Carriage Works, of course, has, you know, a bunch of really experimental things. But, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. You know, an independent sector uh, in Australia-wide is in a really fragile state at the moment. Thank you, George Brandis. Thank you, <laughs> big George. So, yeah, the small to medium sector is in a in a really tricky place and by extension, the main stage companies are going to be uh, in a really tricky place because that's where 
all of that growth is happening, that's where you're getting amazing people like Adina Jacobs, but like Rabble coming through and changing the game and kind of uh, a fresh blood and a fresh ethos and a fresh biodiversity, if you will. Um, but yeah, you know, it's really important for theatre companies, I think, to make work that they want to see, whether that is doing a well-made play or it is doing something that is kind of revolutionising what we think of theatre. Um, and it's also nice to be able to do both. That's the, yeah. that's the thing. And, and to push yourself as, a, as, as actors and as craftspeople to go, I can be in this thing. You know, Charles just came off doing, you know, the 600-seat venue of Chimerica for, you know, two months and three days later he steps into a living room and does a show for 15 people and gets this uh, an entirely different level of satisfaction and has to run his own lights and unpack everything <laughs> and travel there and serve drinks afterwards and play a gig and do all of these things that test him in a completely different way. Uh, but that's also the joy uh, of not getting stuck into one particular thing and saying, I have to make money and do things this way. I have to be this kind of performer which I think is the danger sometimes in Sydney as well uh, as, as as performers and writers we think that there has to be a particular way of doing things to be able to get seen to progress to be internationalist in our focus whereas it's sometimes nice to come in here and, 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 and really meet these people who are coming to the theatre for the first time and go hey this is a really nice method of communication that we can actually hang out have a beer afterwards and and, and engage with you in a, in a level that isn't entirely separated mm. We're talking with Duncan Rag and Matilda Ridgeway about the Corinthian Food Store Collective's production, This This Is Mine, which is opened last night and is running through until the 29th of April and is performed in living rooms around Melbourne. Uh, so uh, it's not the kind of show where I'm going to give out the booking details and go, you need to go to this theatre at this time and so on. <laughs> what you need to do is go to their website, the CorinthianFoodStore.com, where you can find booking details for the show. How do you find houses in Melbourne? <laughs> <laughs> this is a really great question. Hustle. Yeah, a lot of, well, we just kind of put a... You'd be surprised, Richard, how many people want to actually have people come into their space. I don't get it entirely. But, you know, sometimes you'll be sitting in a cafe chatting to someone and we had a lovely lady lean over and go, I'm sorry, are you putting theatre on in living rooms <laughs> salon theatre and I was like yes and she said and she gave me her details she wrote it out on a napkin and said I'd love if you came to my house and we've had several people like that you know friends of friends and, and it's great because none of these people are in our community yeah <laughs> all these people we have to find and, and, and seek out and then suddenly it becomes a new community in and of itself um, which is which is really lovely and the responses from the homeowners are great we had our, the homeowner sitting in last night on the opening night and just so thrilled that her living room had been turned into something else. And then it sits like that afterwards. You have the same way as we, I talked about the house and barrel. You have these ghosts that sit afterwards in the performance. And it's nice to sit in a, in a living room afterwards and having all of these people having walked across the stage and, and the, the music and, and that, that feeling lingers, which is really great to have your entire your space changed. So the next time you sit down to dinner, you go, oh, I remember she hit him there and oh that's the time the candle fell or that's the time the dog walked on stage or that's the time you know yeah. now uh, just to before we wrap up I wanted to mention the last one of the last independent Sydney theatre companies that I spoke to uh, not the last but one of the more recent ones Woodcourt Art Theatre when they came to town last year they struggled a little bit to connect with local audiences because mm. they didn't have a reputation they weren't known in Melbourne um, do you have similar fears or are you already getting bookings for the show we, we, we've, we've We've got like we've got like t ten or fifteen tickets left for the entire season. It's almost sold out, which is crazy. Um, but there's a there's a desire for it. There's a need for it for people to want to see something different and uh, and and something with in some of the best actors in Australia <laughs> coming into a living room and being two meters away from you, and it's an experience. There's there's nothing like it that I've 
I mean, there's people do theatre in living rooms all the time, but um, nothing like this for me. And it's it's I, I've watched the show every night for the last <laughs> year, uh, and I've never got bored of it. it. I think that's that shows. We had a, a reviewer come last night and ask why we would possibly be putting something on at the same time as the comedy festival, and I was like, well, I don't know either. It's different. Uh, it makes people feel something that you you don't get anywhere else. And and we haven't ha- done a show yet in, in in a year and a bit that hasn't sold out. So yeah. I don't know, Richard. I, I'm not a. I, I have, I'm terrible at marketing, but um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, there's something genuine there. I think people really want to come. Fantastic. Uh, you can catch the Corinthian Food Store Collective's "This This Is Mine" uh, on now until the 29th of April, and uh, it's as we said in performed in living rooms across Melbourne. Go to thecorinthianfoodstore.com for booking details, and I presume once people book, they will be sent an email with the details of yeah. where the performance will be. Can you give them a hint of what kind of suburbs you're in? Because, for example, if you live in I don't know in Footscray, you may not want to have to drive to Box Hill to see a show for example. Yeah, well, we're in Coburg tonight uh, and then we move to... Franklin Street in the city. And then um, we move to Fitzroy. North Fitzroy is yes. all next week. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I live in Fitzroy. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> I can, I can walk home. Come along, please. Cool. Uh, if you, uh, as I said, if you want to book for This This Is Mine, uh, go to thecorinthianfoodstore.com. It's on in lounge rooms until the 29th of April. Matilda, Duncan, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks, thanks so much. Ashley Crawford is a cultural commentator, an arts critic, a journalist, and joins us to talk about a new book, uh, which is also accompanied by an exhibition at Bright Space in St Kilda. The book is called Photo by Martin Cantor uh, and is written by Ashley Crawford and Richard Gilliatt. Ashley, welcome to Triple R. Good to have you back. G'day, Richard. For those who were unfamiliar with Michael Cantor, who um, uh, with Martin Cantor, who passed away in 2015, why is he a significant photographer? Why this book and the exhibition? Well, Martin started as a, uh, a cadet journalist on the, on the Australian uh, at a time when the Australian was extremely conservative, even more so than it is now. Um, I was actually a journalist on the Melbourne Herald when it was back when it was a broadsheet, and the two of us, amongst others grew increasingly frustrated with the, the, the way the arts were being covered, blah, blah, blah. Um, we were, of course, being young and rambunctious, more interested in rock and roll than covering sports, so that didn't help. And I decided to start a magazine, um, which became Tension Magazine, uh, and that started more or less as a rock and roll magazine and gradually evolved into an arts magazine. Martin found this incredibly exciting and began honing his skill as a portrait photographer through the pages of the magazines we did. He'd done lots of excellent work for The Australian as a photographer, photojournalist, um, but we sort of gave him the freedom, I suppose, to do things that most of the you know, newspapers and magazines weren't doing. And something quite strange happened because he, when we were doing the rock and roll side of things, he was naturally doing people people like Roland S. Howard and Nick Cave and the, we were covering all those areas. But as we started doing more and more visual arts, we started getting him to do portraits of visual artists. Now, visual artists weren't used to that. Rock and roll dudes were, the visual artists were completely confused, bewildered, and Martin made it worse by using a lot of imagination to capture the actual individual. Now, that notion of progressing from photojournalism to, to portrait 
work, for example, fascinates me because both require similar skills in some way, a keen eye and ability to capture a situation or a story or tell a story through someone's face or someone's pose. But one is very much about... It is about documentation. It's about reportage. Another is a much more creative practice. Talk to us about how his practice evolved from reportage to creative. Well, he was very good at reportage. Um, And we have portraits in the book of people like uh, Bob Hawke, um, which just capture certain political moments, you know, in just the way they should as a journalist. Um, But as we had more time to do magazine work, Martin sort of ended up injecting a lot more imagination. So he'd inject uh, elements of the portraits that sort of reflected the artist's actual work. So he'd get props. He'd add props to it. Um, Or he would just be directly confrontational like a Diane Arbus. Uh, And there's, you know, a number of the, uh, the visual artists found him quite confrontational in the way he would go about sort of suggesting rather oddball uh, moments. I mean, when he photographed an artist such as Dale Frank, he did him more or less as a schizophrenic because of the project he was doing at the time. Dale Frank was furious. Um, We sent him over to New York to do a series of portraits when the magazine went international Uh, and there's a famous comics artist called Charles Burns. Uh, Martin got him to wear a skull mask that was actually on Charles Burns' uh, studio wall. Charles thought Martin was completely stark raving mad. But the results, the results paid off. I mean, no matter how challenging what he'd put his subjects through, they, all of the artists ended up sort of loving him and thinking he was you know, a complete maverick, completely mad, but a fellow artist. So that's where he was heading. He, he went away from photo, pure photojournalism into being a portrait artist. And then he started even dabbling with his own abstract photography. But he died too early to... Uh, really fulfil that. Do you think that the one of the reasons that visual artists were uncomfortable with his approach was because they're often used to, when being photographed, it's either just a standard headshot uh, to appear in a catalogue or they're being asked to pose in front of a painting so that the, the real focus is the artwork that they have created with them standing in front of it. And so by taking them out of that familiar framework, pushing them into, into somewhere uncomfortable, that that was... Was it that that they were kind of reacting against? Uh, that, that was a part of it. I mean, Martin actually refused to photograph artists in front of their artwork. He thought it was insulting to the artwork. That that should be kept separate and um, reproduced accordingly. But uh, I, the other thing was that Martin was used to you know, doing performance, performance, rock and roll performances, Grace Jones, Iggy Pop and so forth, and capturing the drama and the, and the melodrama of, of rock and roll perform, performance. Um, and I think Martin sort of took that approach to a, a new realm, which was the visual arts. So he was, he, he was in his own quite gentle way, quite confrontational, very intelligent man, uh, and he would create sort of elements of discourse about the work. He would torture me when he was um, going off to do a thing. He says, what's the article about? I've got to read the article. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And then at the last minute, he'll change it all. So he, he really, unlike most photographers, he injected his own 
vibrant imagination into into the process and that that was and remains very unusual you look at art magazines today and they nowadays they quite often do use photographs but they are more or less what you described these static headshots that have absolutely in the studio all the clichés martin never did that martin would find other ways to de- depict I mean, there was a Sydney artist called Jennifer Turpin and she made water sculptures, quite beautiful things. So he got her on a cold night in Sydney Harbour up to her neck to take the portrait. She was furious. She was just freezing to death. But you could sort of see his interaction with the artwork and... And he'd get uh, Adam Cullen, which is one of the best portraits in the um, in the book, uh, with a, a dead cat around his neck. I mean, things that you just wouldn't really expect. And you certainly wouldn't see today in, say, Artist Profile or Art Collector magazine. But our magazine's Tension and then World Art, they were deliberately quite confrontational. And Martin became, along with designer Terence Hogan, um, the, the third man, if you like, in terms of creating a, a specific aesthetic. Now, even when he was uh, photographing rock musicians, for example, who, as you say, are, they're used to, to working with photographers, whether in a live situation or in a studio, to draw out the drama and, and create an image. Even some of his uh, rock images, for example, the photo of uh, Bernard Summer from New Order, is not of Bernard, it's of Bernard's shadow. Yes. Uh, or And the, the image opposite that of, of Mark Seymour from Hunters and Collectors, uh, posed in a way that he looks almost like a Ken doll, and it, the, yeah. the architectural kind of landscape around around him is, is just as fascinating as him himself. So there's, again, there's this rich imagination at play in these images. Martin absolutely despised cliché, and he would find, as you point out, Bernard Summers of New Order in, in the forum with that beautiful wall, and there's the, the shadow of, of him up on stage, and there's no suggestion it's a rock band or anything. It's just a very spooky, mysterious photograph. And so that's where he sort of became more and more the artist as opposed to the photojournalist. Because he'd he take risks. He'd take enormous risks. And they paid off. And, and part of the other thing that he was brilliant at was actually befriending a lot of the, the people he photographed. And Charlie Owen I was talking to recently um, when he did text on Charlie... He pointed out that Martin sort of wasn't like the average portrait photographer or the average rock photographer. Martin wouldn't force himself on them, but he also wouldn't be a flower on the wall. He would join in into discussions about the music, about what's going on. And that's how he got the rapport. And he ended up making lifelong friends. I mean, people like David Lowell and Howard Arkley, both of whom have now passed away. Um, But, I mean, they they were lifelong friends and they all started with a portrait. Now, given that you had uh, a close professional relationship and obviously a a friendship with Martin Cantor, what challenges did that present for you in writing the the text that that is published in this book? Did you feel too close to him to be uh, to to write about him professionally? For example, was there any any feeling that you were too too intimate a friend to be? to be honest or to be truthful or, or similarly was there a risk that you felt that you may deify him uh no no not the, not not the latter um it was difficult martin had his share of addictions and problems on a personal level which made working with him sometimes very difficult um and he was he was like many 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 incredibly talented and intelligent people he was always a bit on the edge and that would lead to uh, he was always extremely good with deadlines and very, very reliable. But 
you never kind of knew what kind of mode he would be in. Um, he wasn't many depressive or anything like that, but he just did have a very strong edge to him, which I think is what made the work so incredibly powerful. And it wasn't like... Man, I admired his work enormously, so writing the text was absolutely wonderful. And um, I managed to join up with Richard Gilliatt, who was also a very close friend of, of Martin's from journalism days. And um, I think both Richard and I sort of found we could celebrate this mad madman that we you know, both knew very, very well. But there was no disputing that he was completely, you know, you know um, what's eccentric, we'll put it that way. And uh, you just never knew. You sort of say, OK, Martin, we found the money to send you off to Brisbane to do this, this, this. And you just sort of saw him off to the airport and went, oh, God, what have we done now? Like, <laughs> he was a complete maverick, a complete character and absolutely unpredictable, which when you're employing people can be unnerving. I can imagine. Uh, I would imagine that also because of the conversations that you and Richard Gilliatt had, you would have seen perhaps different facets of Martin Cantor as well, so that that would then further enrich the process of writing the text, choosing the the images for the book and the exhibition as well. Well, Richard knew him probably the best uh, in his younger days. They would have met when they were about 18, 19. Um, so he, Richard does a beautiful job of capturing, you know, the early 80s in a newspaper with the typewriters and the chain-smoking journos and the hard-drinking and, and everything else and also captures how, you know, Martin, like, like my, he and I, um, you know, one time Martin and I was sent off to cover the, the races and we ended up in the bar getting absolutely plastered and, and talking about uh, going to see the go-betweens and laughing clowns. And uh, accordingly, we missed the, uh, the actual race we were meant to cover. Turned out it was a thing called the, the um, Melbourne Cup. Oh, that we, old thing. Yeah, <laughs> we weren't asked to do horse races ever again. Um, and eventually I was actually bumped into doing the rock and roll criti- criti- critiquing for uh, the Herald and, and Martin was set off on arts things. So we sort of found our own level, but we were both sort of we – we never fitted in, put it that way. Richard was a bit more conservative than we were in that regard. Now, the work of Martin Cantor has been uh, has been published as a book available from Hardy Grant Books. Photo by Martin Cantor is the title. And there's also an accompanying exhibition which is being launched tomorrow night at Bright Space at 8 Martin Street, St Kilda. Uh, the launch is from 7 to 10pm tomorrow night and then the exhibition runs through until the 13th of May. As well as the, the work of Martin Cantor himself, there's an accompanying exhibition of work by artists who were his photographic subjects. Yes, the, the gallery director, Carly Greer, came up with that idea and she worked with a curator called Kirsten Rand and they've managed to source images and actual paintings, uh, works on paper, other, other kind of artworks from everybody from, you know, really well-known artists like Jenny Watson and Dale Frank through to people like Nick Cave. Um, so they've come up with quite a... a uh, it's, it's really a daytime show because you want to spend a bit of time there. And, uh, and it's got lovely contrast because you can go to the photograph of the portrait of the artist by Martin Cantor and then walk into the back room and you can actually see a work that was produced the same year that that photograph was taken. So it's kind of a time capsule of, of the... Oh, the 80s through to the 90s. A and time capsule and a dialogue as and well. And very much a dialogue, which is what Martin was about. 
Photo by Martin Cantor, uh, words by Ashley Crawford and uh, Richard Gilliatt, as I said, is published by Hardy Grant Books and available in all good bookstores. The book launch and the exhibition launch, as I said, happening tomorrow, the 21st of April from 7 till 10pm at Bright Space, 8 Martin Street, St Kilda. And you can uh, also then choose to visit the exhibition at any point from uh, from then on until the 13th of May. Uh, if you'd like more information, go to www.brightspace.com.au. Ashley Crawford, many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.